economist, uh, Gita Gopinath, so I think the official title is Economic Counselor and Director of Research, just to get that right. Thank you so much for coming, Gita. Um, it's wonderful to host you today. Now, uh, Gita, Maria, and I will engage in a conversation on this topic, um, but as a kickoff, uh, we wanted to have a presentation of a recent paper by the IMF on exactly that topic, which was uh, drafted and prepared by Sheikha Ayar, who's the division chief at the International Fund, Monetary Fund, and Romain Duval, who's a senior advisor at the IMF. Uh, Romain and uh, Sheikha, uh, can I suggest that you start uh, kicking us off with the presentation of your paper, um, and then we, uh, we afterwards we have the discussion. Thank you so much. So thanks very much for coming. Um, today we're releasing a new paper, which is a collaboration between our European department and our research department. It's entitled Strengthening the Euro Area, the Role of National Structural Policies in Building Resilience. So I'm going to motivate this with a couple of diagrams showing that when you look at the path of output and employment or unemployment across the Euro um, countries have diverged very markedly in their performance, especially after the global financial crisis. Now, there are many reasons for this divergence, but at least one of the reasons is that because of structural dissimilarities in the economies, they have responded differently to shocks. And uh, th th this can be seen quite markedly in these different time series parts. Um, so this paper is going to look at how structural reforms can build economic resilience. I should say that there's been plenty of work, which I'm sure all of you are familiar with, talking about the virtues of structural performance for productivity, for TFP, for economic growth. The focus of this paper is different. We're focusing specifically on resilience. How do various characteristics of the business cycle, how are those altered by structural reforms? Now, you can think of two types of structural reforms. One of them is union-wide structural reforms. Think about the banking union, the capital markets union, a central fiscal capacity. This paper is rather going to focus on national structural reforms. And we have three in mind, product market reforms, labor market reforms, and reforms to corporate insolvency regimes. OK, so let me just skip over some slides, given the time constraint we have and show you this chart. Now, it's a very busy chart, but what it does show in, in red and blue and purple are recessions, um, and um, what you can see from this is that over the last 20 years, it looks as if recessions and the recovery period that you need from recessions have deviated in the euro area compared to other advanced countries. So they've become longer, they've become more prolonged. So obviously you can see that with the double dip recession that followed the global financial crisis. But even earlier in the decade, you can see that it seems that it was more the case in the euro area than in other advanced countries. So as I said, this paper is going to look at a suite of structural reforms. So let me dive straight into some of our, our results. Uh, first, we find that more stringent labor and product market regulations are associated with reduced resilience. 
What do we mean by reduced resilience? Well, if you look at the histogram for product market regulations, what that shows is that if you've done product market regulations, so if you're at the 25th percentile of product market regulations as opposed to the 75th percentile, that has the impact of reducing the duration of recessions by about one quarter and making the amplitude of the recession less severe by about one percentage point. Um, turning to the labor market, when you look at employment project protection for, for regular employees, again, um, doing a package of reforms there, loosening labor market regulation, is associated with a, a, a fall in the amplitude that is the severity of recessions. This, by the way, is done using an OECD index of product and labor market regulations, and be happy to answer questions as to how that's constructed. Apart from the average results of the previous uh, diagram, we also find that um, there is weaker resilience to major recessions um, if you have done product market and labor market reforms. So the top panel uh, shows the performance of countries which have done a big reform package of product and labor markets. And the bottom panel shows countries what they look like if they haven't done those reforms. And you can see that in terms of the severity and the duration of the recessions, it, it, it seems that those who have done reforms uh, perform better. Again, the paper itself has got the full results, including confidence intervals and all that, but this is just a foretaste of the results that we have. Now, the, the paper also looks uh, you know, more into the details of these regulations, because obviously it's not about a one-size-fits-all paper, like uh, you know, advocating that deregulation is good. You can actually adjust in different ways, and that's quite important. And in fact, what we document in the paper is that uh, you know, this sort of Anglo-Saxon countries and Nordic countries have been adjusting in different ways, but actually with very different degrees of worker protection, very different fiscal costs of this protection, but have been adjusting both, uh, you know, pretty well actually to, to, to the various shocks that we've seen over the past two decades. So we delve into that. I will skip that for the sake of time, but that's something I really want to leave you with and maybe it will come up in the discussion. Now, beyond labor and product market regulations, a third area that we look into is um, insolvency regimes. Uh, why is that? It's because one uh, mechanism through which an economy needs to adjust through shocks is through reallocation okay, of workers and capital away from uh, declining firms toward more dynamic ones. And the corporate insolvency regimes, they play an important role in this regard, and they were very heterogeneous prior to the crisis in Europe. They're still heterogeneous, despite some you know, in big improvements in some cases, like Portugal, for example. And what we document that you can see already on the left chart is that actually, even in levels, there's a striking simple cross-sectional correlation between the quality of the insolvency regime, which here is measured by some recent summary index uh, put together by OECD staff, and uh, a measure of ca capital misallocation, which is here the standard deviation of revenue total factor productivity across industries. And more interesting is the fact that after the crisis, and that's the right chart here, there was a bigger increase in this measure of misallocation, so the dispersion okay, of, of, of marginal products of capital and revenue factor productivity, a bigger increase in dispersion in those countries that had poor insolvency regimes vis-a-vis -vis those that had better insolvency regimes. And in the paper, we do some follow-up firm-level analysis on this uh, that delves into... Um, 
the role of corporate insolvency regimes for the correlation, the strength of the correlation at the firm level between a firm's marginal um, productivity of capital and the growth of its capital stock. If capital is well allocated, those firms that have greater marginal productivity should be growing their capital stock more. Right? And what we show in the, in, in, the, in the paper is that indeed this correlation is going to be stronger in industries that naturally need a lot of, uh, of, of firm turnover, so need to adjust regularly. They need firm entry, firm exit. And in those industries, you see a, a big impact of corporate insolvency regimes, and in particular, the efficiency of procedures. Like, are there special procedures for SMEs? Can you have out-of-court procedures? So that's something that really helps the, the, the capital reallocation in wake of a shock and therefore strengthen the resilience to shocks. So Let's, let's keep that. And the final thing we do in this, uh, in this paper is to look into the interactions between structural policies and macro policies. And we look into four types of interactions. One is obviously the role of the exchange rate regime. And here what we highlight is that the role of these reforms for the resilience to shocks is much bigger in a, in a monetary union than it would be under a flexible exchange rate. That is obvious you know, from the textbook. We all know that. But one thing we do here is we actually quantify that using a, a model that has uh, specific labor and product market regulations in it. And what you can see from the, the top two charts is that um, th that chart shows you the response of a, a typical euro area economy to an adverse risk premium shock, so a big spike in interest rate spreads right, that brings down output by, by 5%, which was more or less what happened during the, the crisis. And what you can see is that the red line shows you the, the adjustment path under current labor and product market regulations, and the blue path shows you the adjustment that would take place if these labor and product market regulations were aligned to some uh, of the um, regulations in the euro area, among euro area countries, that are typically sort of uh, you know, better practice, if you wish. And as you can see, there's a, you know, there's a big gain in terms of output resilience from having these more flexible institutions. You see on the top right chart that they would, there's an even bigger gain in terms of labor market adjustment to the shock. The response of unemployment would be much smoother. And what you can see in the top down um, charts is that under a flexible exchange rate regime, so if that same country had a flexible exchange rate regime, then the role of reforms would matter less. Okay? The difference between the blue and red line is less in the top to down charts, in the down, sorry, charts. The second important interactions we look into is the interactions with fiscal policies. Uh, the good thing is structural reforms actually would ease, by smoothing the impact of shocks, they would ease the burden on macro policy. You would need less fiscal policy, less monetary policy stabilization, which would be a good thing in itself. Now, the, the good news a priori for the more rigid economies is that, in fact, fiscal multipliers are bigger under more rigid labor and product market regulations, just like uh, the macro impact of shocks is bigger and therefore the macro impacts of fiscal shocks is also bigger. So that's kind of a good news a priori because you would think that should help uh, more rigid economies stabilize through fiscal policies. Okay? But the issue is if at the same time you lack fiscal space, then uh, you actually lose that margin of adjustment. And that's what the chart illustrates here. It illustrates that you know, this is the output response to 1% GDP, 1% um, um, increase, sorry, 1 uh, percentage point GDP increase in government spending. And what you see is under current institution, that's the red line, the output response is actually pretty large, right, under a, a crisis situation in a recession. The blue line shows you the response that would take place under more flexible institution, but the 
purple line shows you that without fiscal space, that is, if there's an adverse feedback loop between the fiscal stimulus and interest rate spreads, you actually get uh, the purple line, which basically means a much lower fiscal multiplier. And so the issue is, and we highlight that in the paper, is that the more rigid economies that lack fiscal space, they need to build to work on both margins. That is, do the reforms and rebuild the fiscal space to, to be able to better adjust to shocks. And um, the third interaction we look into is the, the, the interplay between structural reforms and monetary policy. And here's a very, very simple message. Uh, the reforms would reduce the likelihood of hitting the effective lower bound by smoothing the impact of shocks, so that's a gain. And the second one is they would also entail less cyclical divergence across countries, so that common monetary policy would actually be better suited for the, whole, uh, for the monetary union countries. Um, and finally, national and you know, euro area or EU-wide reforms should go hand in hand. They are the two legs of the same agenda to strengthen the resilience of the euro area, and they entail complementarities. For example, the capital um, uh, market union, on which we will actually release a paper soon, the capital market union will work a lot better if corporate insolvency regimes are improved in individual countries and they're harmonized. That's one example of interactions, but in fact there's others. So to conclude, uh, recessions uh, in the euro area, they've been more severe and more frequent relative to other advanced economies um, since the late 90s, over the past two decades, the reforms would help strengthen the euro um, area resilience a great deal. That's really crucial in a monetary union. This has been well known for a long time, but again, I think we put really sort of uh, this to the, um, we put numbers, you know, onto these, uh, these sort of old textbook statement here. Corporate insolvency regimes are really crucial also to deliver the needed flexibility, in this case through reallocation of resources, which is often really overlooked as an important way through which you adjust to shocks. Cyclical and structural policies interact, and in particular, we need both reforms and rebuilding fiscal space to facilitate macro-adjustment you know, going forward in, in the more rigid economies. And finally, there's also really complementarities to be exploited between the euro area, EU-wide reform agenda and national reform agenda. Thanks a lot. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for, for this presentation. Um, let's perhaps uh, start first with Maria to give a few reactions on the, on the presentation, um, and then we have a conversation among us. Maria, um, three, minutes. three yeah. minutes. Okay, thank you very much, Guntram. Thank you very much, Shekhar. Uh, Roman, thank you for, for the presentation. And Gita, thank you very much for joining us uh, here in Brussels. Um, yeah, just uh, maybe a few comments on the presentation, and then I'd like to link it uh, to the discussion to uh, risks and, and sort of what, what kind of risks we are facing. And therefore, when we're talking about resilience, what type of things we need in order to, to move forward. But I leave that for the discussion also with Gita and, and also our, our audience. Um, I wanted to, to make my first comment is the very last thing you said in your presentation. I'm very happy that you, you did that. Your paper makes a very clear choice in terms of which part of the resilience story to talk about, and that is on the structural reforms. It's <coughs> this part of, 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 the, of this side of the Atlantic, we call this the risk reduction types of measures. Uh, there is also another, another side to, to improve the resilience, which is the risk sharing. And, and you haven't talked about this at all in your presentation, but I'm delighted that you said at the end that really the two go hand in hand, and it's crucial that we work on both of them together. If you think about designing health insurance systems, you need both better health practices and you need a health insurance. And I think that's an important point in the conversation because, unfortunately, I think that conversation is stuck uh, and is preventing us from making real 
progress on the issue that actually threatens resilience, uh, in my view. So I'm delighted that you brought this at, uh, you brought this at the end of the, of the presentation. We need both architectural improvements and we need structural reforms to reinforce resilience in, in uh, euro area and the EU economies. Um, the one thing I'd like to point out from, from your discussion is one structural reform that is notably absent from your, from your paper, and, I, I, in, and, and I, in my view is crucial for economic outcomes, but actually for societal outcomes as well, and that is the issue of governance. And I call this governance, uh, and I include a number of different things in there, and that includes things like the rule of law. Uh, but it's broader than that. It's the quality of public administration, mm. it's corruption, it's the freedom of press. Anything that has to do with the way that we govern um, a country, in my view, is, is so important that I would even call it structural reform 0.0. Before this, before having good structural reforms uh, on, on the side of the governance, it's very difficult to guarantee good economic outcomes. And unfortunately, we've seen that uh, um, prior to the crisis for some countries and after the crisis for others, we have had a regression in terms of the quality of governance on a number of these indicators. You can think of different ways of measuring this. The World Bank indicators is one measure. Um, but we've seen that the quality of our democracies, in, because this is actually what it touches upon, has actually come down. And there's now broad literature, some of it actually written by the ECB, on, on the correlations between, um, and I, I actually think it's broader than correlations, uh, between good governance uh, and, uh, and a good economic outcomes. So if you're going to have to, if you're going to advise one structural reform, in my view, that should be really at the top up there, ensure uh, that, uh, that we make progress there. Because if anything else, it has also undermined the trust uh, in the EU and our ability to move on these structural reforms and on the risk sharing has totally been undermined <coughs> by the lack of trust. So I think this is a crucial point and I would, I would put up uh, at the top. Uh, now, in terms of the risks as we move forward, um, in my view, there, in the euro area, they're probably broader than the euro area, but in the euro area, there are two main risks. One is a short-term risk, and one is a, a long-term risk. The short-term risk is the one arising from the possibility, probably probability at this point, of trade wars. Uh, that's going to be an, an, an immediate, it's going to have an immediate impact <coughs> on, uh, on the cycle. So I think that's the first one. Um, and the second one is the emergence of China and how do we deal with moving into a world which is now broader than just uh, uh, we knew before in a different multilateral system where the rules are not quite the same rules as we always had. What does that mean about Europe's industrial policy? What does it mean about Europe's trade policy and Europe's uh, um, competition policy? It's going to have direct effects on, on your arguments about structural reforms because there are, if we have to rethink competition policy, do we? Uh, or if we have to rethink trade policy, do we? Um, this is going to have direct impacts on, on how do we need to reform structurally. Um, and then beyond that, uh, it goes also on issues, it touches on issues uh, that have to do with the exchange rate. Uh, um, the, the euro is, is the second global currency in the world. I mean, do we need to think about moving forward with the exchange rate? Um, what types of things would we need to uh, put in place if we wanted the exchange rate to become more of a global use, uh, used currency than it is today? Um, and what would the ECB have to do uh, to, ref to reflect that? I think these are important issues to, um, to think about. Uh, they entail a number of different risks uh, as we move forward, and they certainly pertain to your desire to define what are the, the main structural reforms that go beyond the labor, the typical structural reform type of issues, labor market, product markets, even insolvency. Um, so uh, with that, I think I'd like to open up the, the, uh, the discussion and uh, we take it from there. 
Well, uh, thank you very much. Uh, and Gita, let me uh, perhaps uh, uh, throw the first question at you. I mean, we've heard uh, sort of the presentation, which was, uh, let's say, giving, I would say, can I say almost the mantra, right? Product and labor market reforms, more flexibility in the labor markets uh, is great for your economic performance, especially when, when you're fiscally constrained. That's what you should be focusing on. And that's what some countries did focus on at the height of the crisis. Yet, citizens don't really like it because when they hear labor market flexibility, what they actually understand is, well, I'm going to lose my job and I, if I want to have an, a new job, I have to move to a city that is 300 kilometers away. I'm separated from my family. And so, uh, so I guess my first question to you is, you know, where, where are we on, I mean, nowadays member states refuse to listen to this kind of, of advice. Uh, we see some member states, um, Italy, for example, um, that votes explicitly for politicians that have a very different um, a, a agenda. Um, so, so where are we in this debate? And shouldn't we perhaps, as sort of advising institutions, um, focus a bit more perhaps on Maria's second point, which is a sort of good governance, quality of the institutions, which is also a difficult thing to, to, to do, but where citizens would feel, well, if that actually happens, it's not at my immediate cost, it's actually also at my immediate benefit. Thank you so much for hosting us at Bruegel. This is a really great opportunity, and Maria, for, for joining this conversation. It's a pleasure to be here with both of you. Uh, to your question about uh, structural reforms and how political viable they are, I mean, to be very clear, what the paper uh, emphasizes is that there is no such thing as one size fits all, which means it's not a blanket recommendation about liberalizing labor markets in a way that seems uh, unfriendly to the employee. Uh, the point, and I think there is a basic uh, there are two basic principles that we care about. One is that there is adaptability of the labor market to cyclical conditions, which means in terms of hours worked or in terms of wages. And of course, different countries can deal with those in very different ways. So, for instance, in Germany, during the peak of the crisis, most of the adjustment took place through hours and not through wages. So that's one piece of the of the uh, mechanism. Uh, and then the second is to ensure that there is employee protection, which means that once you're out and you're unemployed, that there is unemployment insurance, uh, and there is a mechanism to ensure that these unemployed find jobs. So there is help with uh, job uh, matches. Now, the specific details about how you institutionalize that can vary across country. Uh, and is clearly dependent upon the political environment in a country. But I think these, these fundamental tenets uh, remain. So in that sense, um, I, I wouldn't see it as being a politically untenable. And of course, completely agree with the idea that governance is hugely important. I mean, it's hard to disagree with that. Uh, and that should certainly be a part of this. I mean, the point of this paper was to quantify the importance of labor market, product market, and insolvency regimes, which is not something that's been done before. So that's a very distinct contribution here. Can I, can I push you a bit on um, the role of the exchange rate? And I know you've published a lot, and perhaps you can tell us a little bit about uh, your research and your thinking on this, the importance of flexible exchange rate and fixed exchange rates. Um, of course, the Eurozone is uh, a currency area, uh, not just a fixed exchange rate regime, but we don't have a nominal exchange rate anymore, obviously, in the currency area. So we've lost that instrument. 
Now, these results here suggest that it, it has actually come at a cost in terms of being able to adjust to shocks. Um, we need to have more labor market flexibility to be able to adjust to these kind of shocks. Now, your research um, put some question marks, at least, on uh, the importance of the nominal exchange rate um, in adjusting uh, to, to outside shocks. Perhaps you can talk us a little bit through the main arguments of, of your research and how you would link that to the Eurozone. So exchange rate uh, flexibility is value just firstly from a broad point of view because it gives you independence in monetary policy, right? Uh, so when you become part of a currency union, then each individual country is giving up monetary policy independence. So there's that one piece to it, which would work even in the absence, even if exchange rate flexibility in and of itself didn't buy you too much. The fact that you have independent monetary policy uh, plays an important role. Uh, in terms of the benefits that exchange rate flexibility gives you, which is through the expenditure switching channel, that is with the weaker currency, you get more demand towards your good. I think what recent research uh, tells you is that while there are certainly benefits to it, it's not as big as was previously uh, perceived. Now, again, to be clear, there are benefits. It does provide you some insulation, but not of the magnitude uh, that we've seen, uh, that have been, has been argued based on traditional models or based on old ideas of how trade takes place. So that's what my research pushes for. And I, if I could put in a plug, we're going to soon have a special feature in our uh, external stability report that comes out in July, where we will expressly be providing empirical evidence on the link between exchange rates and external adjustment. Uh, and how it happens, how it differs in the short run and the medium run, how it affects imports and exports. And so we'll have more on that. Well, obviously, in the Eurozone, there has been a lot of expenditure switching despite the absence of, um, of a nominal exchange rate. I mean, the countries in southern Europe, um, Portugal, Spain, but also Ireland, um, uh, um, have had huge turnarounds in, in their current account position um, and a huge boost in their exports. Um, so the, the adjustment of the current account deficit didn't just happen through demand contraction. It also happened through um, being able to increase massively um, uh, your, your exports um, in those three countries, at least. Now, the one country that stands out very much is, is Greece, um, uh, where this expenditure shifting hasn't really happened. I mean, it's happening in some sectors very specifically, but overall, you don't see it so strongly in Italy as you see it in Spain and, uh, and in, in Portugal. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering, um, when we talk about the resilience of the Eurozone, I mean, uh, the, the country that, uh, that we worry about is one country is, is certainly is, is, is Greece, um, and one country um, at the moment that many people are worried about um, is, is Italy. Where do you see those countries and where do you see the key, key issues that we, we should be focusing on when we talk about resilience of the Eurozone? So, um, I mean, as you rightly pointed out, uh, because of adjustment in prices, there were countries that did gain real exchange rate competitiveness. Uh, and so while it didn't come about to nominal exchange rates, it came across through prices. And so they did gain, and Spain is an, exam is, is an example of that. But then also, what you, like, right, you rightly pointed out, uh, the countries that do not gain are the ones that are not very competitive. So if you start from a point where you're not very competitive, then it's very hard to make, get the changes that you need just through price adjustments to make it more competitive. And so the whole point of the, uh, the paper that we're putting out today is to highlight the importance of reforms. Uh, and again, while it sounds very 
traditional and, and well taken on product labor markets and corporate uh, insolvency, the bottom line is that we are not seeing much progress in it. Uh, and we are quantifying the, the benefits of that for these countries. So these are important uh, reforms that have to be undertaken and cannot be waited on, particularly given that we live in a time where the risks are high, as Maria pointed out, that you know, the you know, global growth is slowing. We're expecting a recovery, but there are risks on the horizon, uh, which means that you really do need more resilient economies because the next time it comes around, monetary policy space, while exists, is limited. Uh, fiscal policy space is unevenly limited across many countries. Uh, and so, and then the question is, is there going to be enough cooperation at the global level like there was in 2008? Again, that's limited. So it's quite important for countries to undertake uh, structural reforms at the national level. Well, um, you mentioned already the global risks, and, and perhaps we do want to spend a, a moment also talking about the global, the global issues. But before doing so, let me perhaps spend one minute still on the Eurozone more specifically, because we want to talk about the, the, the resilience of the Eurozone. So we've talked about the national reforms, uh, the national structures, uh, the exchange rate. Uh, what we haven't talked about yet is the Eurozone architecture. And uh, of course, I mean, you have a lot of specialists here in the room that... Uh, uh, have worked the last uh, the last ten years on trying to improve the eurozone and the functioning of the eurozone. Um, you you guys also mentioned, I think, banking union, capital markets union, and 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 other uh, sort of structural uh, structural factors. And I have to say, the fund was, um, in terms of the discussion on the architecture of the eurozone, always a very strong advocate um, uh, here in Brussels and in the national capitals to really move the debate and to improve our institutional framework. Where would you, uh, looking at this now with a fresh uh, pair of eyes, uh, put the, the strongest accent on when looking at this whole, whole mix of discussion, fiscal union, banking union, capital markets union, where would you put the accent? Or do you think they are all related? I mean, what's your take from the outside at this stage? So we also do, we emphasize, uh, like you rightly pointed out, the importance of, the, of a banking union, of capital markets union, and having a uh, union-wide fiscal capacity. Uh, if I had to start with one, I would start with capital markets union. Uh, and the reason for that uh, is, firstly, that it may be more doable than some of the others. Uh, and there is an urgent uh, need for it. Uh, capital markets are highly fragmented in the euro area. Uh, that's one. And then the second uh, question is, how do we get around to it? Like, what specific uh, reform would need to be undertaken for a capital markets union? Here, we, we have three things we flag. One is better transparency, which is trying to have some sort of a minimum reporting standards for corporations when they want to uh, borrow, for instance. Two, uh, it would be to have some kind of a common uh, oversight uh, authority for non-bank financial institutions. Uh, and third would be uh, a minimum standards on corporate insolvency. So again, so this kind of ties back to the national structural reforms and again highlights what Roman and Shaker pointed out, which is the complementarity between national reforms and union-wide reforms, because the same corporate insolvency thing helps both for capital markets union as it does for, um, uh, for individual country resilience. Uh, another reason corporate... Uh, uh, sorry, capital markets union would be uh, very valuable is for the point Maria raised, which is about the international role of the euro. Uh, there is a big uh, push and a big interest in having the euro be a more global currency, 
closer in line to what the dollar is. Uh, and we know that that's not the case. So the question is, what is it that's uh, missing? And an important piece of what's required to become a dominant currency is to have to produce a safe asset in your currency, to have large enough, deep enough markets of safe assets that are in euros. Uh, and that is, again, something that's missing. Again, a capital markets union would help with producing more safe assets in terms of euros. And that would be one way to becoming a more uh, dominant currency. Indeed, I mean, I think the uh, capital markets uh, union debate uh, is a very big debate, and I certainly entirely agree with your point on uh, on a centralized supervision. I mean, a stronger centralized supervision. We've advocated that very strongly in the in the ECOFIN uh, a year ago when we gave a presentation there. The appetite is quite limited on that. Now, um, uh, and I do want to bring Maria also in on, on the capital markets union point, um, but, but let me push you perhaps one, one, a little bit more on the last point you made, which is the one on the safe asset, which is, of course, a wonderful point. I mean, of course, to, to have a, a strong euro, you need deep capital markets. We agree on that. Uh, you need um, the central bank to be ready to provide swap lines. Yep. We agree with that, probably. Um, but then you say we need the safe asset. And... Um, uh, I, I guess I want to push you on whether you think a safe asset is actually possible without um, fiscal union. Because, um, I mean, uh, you, 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 you uh, were suggesting almost it's just a capital markets union thing. But, of course, a safe asset means you have to have an issuer who's safe, right? Now, there has been all kinds of constructions that were discussed in the last couple of years being... Uh, sort of uh, packaged um, national sovereign debts into, into a, a collateralized obligation, which I think this SB discussion by Brunnermeyer and Al, which I think is now largely dismissed, a new debate is to have an institution uh, like the ESM issue a debt, um, a bond, on behalf of all the member states of the Eurozone. Um, but you know, when you do that, when you do that kind of a construction, you actually talk about basically a fiscal, uh, a fiscal union, a fiscal construction where some fiscal risk sharing uh, is at least partially agreed. Um, so, so how strongly can we go forward with a safe asset without really making some progress on on agreeing on fiscal risk sharing? I mean, fiscal risk sharing uh, is something that we have argued for. Besides the fact that we want a stronger euro. Uh, because in terms of macro stabilization, again, from a resilience perspective, each individual country can do its best, but at the same time, there will always be shocks that require risk sharing. And so you do need that, so besides, even besides the uh, international role of the euro. Now, you're right that if, if you think of uh, US safe asset, it's the US T-bill. And, and that is, in terms of the depth of its market, is way bigger than any individual, even if you take the Germans you know, the, the safest assets in the, in the, in the euro area, those, that's a much bigger uh, market than we're seeing over here. Then, of course, there is the question of, is something else feasible? Is it possible to have a euro bond, as was the original proposal, or some of these other uh, um, uh, programs that you tried to, you mentioned? And, uh, that, I mean, it is, it is a tough road. Uh, but, you know, that said, it, it has to be put out there that if there is the plan to make the euro a more global currency, this is a part of the a part of transition that has to, one has to go through. Now, you, now one intermediate step is to have very safe corporate bonds, right? So you can have AAA securities uh, that pay out in euros, 
and that are considered very safe. So they're not the same as government securities, but they're still corporate securities, very high ratings. And you see that that's another piece of uh, what enters safe securities in, in the US. Right? And again, this brings me back to the capital markets union, which is it's, uh, one of the things we want to emphasize is that there has to be a greater reliance on, bond, uh, on you know, portfolio funding as opposed to relying on bank loans. And there's too little corporate debt that gets issued. Uh, in, again, uh, the euro area. So, again, increasing the depth of the capital markets, of uh, having it more uh, integrated, uh, will be beneficial in, first of all, having companies get access to alternative sources of funding besides banks, and in terms of uh, producing these kinds of safe assets, at least at the corporate level. Yeah, I just wanted to pick up on the on the on the same agenda. I mean, I certainly agree. The the, the biggest argument for advocating for capital markets union is this idea of diversifying the funding model. Europe is a, is, a, is a continent where we rely entirely on banks for financing investments and financing growth. So having having markets as an alternative is certainly something that would be very good for the resilience of the system. Now, I, where I am a little bit more sober is, uh, is whether this is actually feasible, and it's feasible in a sort of, you know, in, in, in what term. Um, you know, I mean, the issue of, uh, for example, insolvency, I, I was a little bit surprised to see the insolvency uh, structural reform being part of the report, not because I don't think it's a good thing, I think it's a great thing, but actually the insolvency discussion on the corporate side was very much discussed back when the NPL was a huge problem in, in Europe. Now that the NPL is, is petering out with very small, I think basically Greece, I think, is the only country that has got very little progress on this. All the other countries, including Italy, have made huge improvements and continue to, to make improvements on the NPL problem. So the insolvency regime is less, um, the insolvency regimes and the quality of insolvency regimes is less pertinent right now, despite the fact that in order to go to a sort of a full-fledged capital markets union, we need to have insolvency regimes that are at some sort of synchronized. Um, because that removed the uncertainty of capital markets operating across, across borders. But how easy is that? I mean, so taxation and sort of insolvency regimes are the two most important obstacles, I think, in, um, in terms of, of advancing with capital markets union, which means that, I mean, if you believe that, and, you know, we can talk about that, then that means that the term at which we're talking about building solid capital markets union is not anytime soon. Um, uh, of course, the discussion right now is picking up again because we've come to an end of a regulatory cycle in, in Europe in terms of what uh, regulations we put forward, but we haven't seen much progress. So what is the next step that we need to do for, for CME agenda to advance? And I think that is a good discussion to have, but I'm a little bit more sober than you are in terms of how quick we're going to achieve that. So, you know, I always say, I think we should finish banking union first. Yeah. Um, I mean, not despite CMU, but I certainly think we should put a lot of effort in finishing uh, something we actually have agreed upon. We've agreed on the banking union. It's just a matter of finding that extra fiscal uh, leg because we actually the next leg of, uh, of banking union is the fiscal leg. Is the one that, that's why it's so difficult. Uh, but I would actually put the emphasis more on finishing banking union rather than, than and that is not to say that I don't want it. But um, I think uh, and the issue discussion of a safe asset. Um, is, is, is a difficult one. On insolvency, though, I think bank insolvency, now that is something that I think we need to make it, uh, synchronizing bank insolvency, not mm. corporate, because we need it also for banking unions. So that, I would tilt the priority slightly different uh, in, mm. uh, in, that, in that respect. No, I mean, I can't... I yeah. w agree with you on the banking union. I just, there's, there's more progress has been made on the banking union oh, than sure. on the, on the capital right. markets union. <laughs> and so uh, I put that out there. But, yeah. but I agree with you that 
what's essential is to have a fiscal backstop for the banking union to work, for it to be a credible fiscal backstop, which means that the, the amount of money that's in it is significant enough. And secondly, that they can respond quickly enough when there is an actual liquidity crisis. So those two pieces still remain uh, to be done. And, uh, and the absolutely. Eurogroup agreement of last week hasn't settled that, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, the, the backstop is insufficient yes. and badly constructed. So. Yes. And also, I just, just want to say that it's very easy for all of us to race to the bottom in terms of pessimism, but let's hope. Oh. <laughs> let's, let's, let's try to be a little more optimistic. Okay. Well, well um, let's talk a little bit about the... Uh, we have a bit of time before I open up uh, uh, to the to the audience, let's talk a little bit about the global the global landscape, mm -hmm. um, which, uh, of course, you as uh, from the IMF and as, as the uh, director of research, I mean, you are best placed to talk us through uh, really the global the global risks, but but also perhaps uh, some can we say some predictions of how you see uh, how you see things going going forward, uh, especially in the global trade conflict between between the US and China, I mean, the bilateral trade conflict between the US and China, I think this is very much, of course, very much up uh, on our minds here in Europe. Uh, one reason being, of course, that um, uh, we are very open economies. I mean, we, uh, European economies are significantly more open than even if you look just at extra EU um, exports. Um, they are more open than... Uh, than uh, than the U.S. economy and uh, and certainly the Chinese economy, so we are very much dependent on the global uh, global trading system. Uh, yet this global trading system is under attack uh, by the U.S. president. The multilateral trading system is under attack by the U.S. Pre uh, president, and there are a number of tensions um, uh, in the bilateral relations between China and the U.S., but also between the U.S. and, and Europe. So. So how big is the effect on Europe in your sort of views and um, what, uh, what would be your advice also to European policymakers going forward um, uh, on, on how best to deal with this trade uh, landscape? Uh, so firstly, I would just start by flagging that global growth that we can significantly in the second half of 2018 uh, has yet to recover. Uh, so we're seeing some tentative signs of stabilization in the growth but again, at lower rates in 2019 than in 2018. Uh, and our April uh, focus was for there to be some improvement towards the end of this year and a further improvement in 2020. Now, we see important risks to the outlook. Uh, we think of this recovery as precarious. And among the big risks are, one is the US-China trade tensions. Uh, we will learn more about that at the end of this month uh, around the G20 meetings. Then there is the ever-present risk, and this is particularly true for Europe, is Brexit and the possibility of a no-deal Brexit that hasn't gone away at this point. It is a real risk. Uh, and the third is that we live in an environment with very high levels of debt, both in the private sector and in the public sector, and some countries more than others. So if there's any change in financial market sentiment, so for instance, if there is news that global growth is even slowing faster than we expected, uh, that can trigger a sharp increase in borrowing costs, and that could also trigger, uh, you know, a, a real distress-like situation in, in different parts of the world. So these are the things uh, we worry about. And yes, on top of this, the number one risk that we have up there is on trade. Uh, on right now, it's focused on U.S.-China trade tensions uh, and how much it will escalate. But of course, no country is, is excluded from it, but. 
countries that are more exposed to international trade, Germany, for instance, is particularly uh, affected by, by these kinds of trade tensions. Uh, the question is what happens and how, do, how, do you, uh, how does a country prepare for it? Uh, now, of course, I think that the, the first uh, you know, hope would be that there would not be a further escalation in tariffs. I mean, that has to be the number one uh, policy prescriptions, and if anything, uh, a reversal or a removal of the tariffs that have been put in place. Because it, regardless of how quickly, how you try to insulate your economy from such an event, it's not going to happen in a very short amount of time. These things take time, and so there's going to be a transitory effect on the economy. So for instance, we did an estimate of what it would imply for global growth if all the existing US-China tariffs plus those that have been threatened are put in place, uh, then that would reduce global growth by about half a percentage point, 0.5% so in 2020. Uh, and that is, you know, that's a significant, uh, significant amount. Uh, what, should, what should policymakers in Europe do to deal with this? Uh, you know, I think the first, I think it's, it's very good that the EU is, take, is proposing initiatives to uh, improve the WTO's functioning and to have a more level playing field. I think that's important because you certainly need to modernize the trading system. That's a positive input into it, and so that's, that's very welcome. Uh, but if it does so happen that there is a more severe crisis, then of course we're going to have to put all hands on deck in terms of policy instruments to use. Uh, so far there's been a heavy reliance on monetary policy, but if things become much more uh, severe, you would need to call in fiscal policy and of course, this would vary depending upon the fiscal space that countries have. But if you have some sort of a synchronized fiscal policy, uh, then that would uh, would also be important. Would it make sense for Germany to um, increase um, investment spending already now in anticipation of possible future shocks and also to rebalance its um, current account surplus um, and thereby perhaps reduce a little bit the uh, political pressure coming from the US? I mean, there is... Uh, a great need to raise potential growth in, in the euro area and in Germany, and Germany has the fiscal space to do that. So yes, I would agree with you that it should undertake investment to raise potential growth. Uh, and now is as good time as any when it can borrow at negative interest rates at the 10-year horizon. It's, these are very friendly conditions to be doing so. We are agreeing too much here on the audiences. <laughs> okay. Um, Maria, so, so uh, for sure I want to open up if there is, a, so, and I have to ask you to ask crisp and clear questions, not long statements, please. And Francesco Papadia is the first, and you're the second. Yes, I think you're uh, take, the, take, take a micro, please. Francesco Papadia from Brugge. I understand you well. You say um, Eurobond is the first best. If you cannot get them, let's work on corporate. Um, <coughs> Would it not be more uh, useful uh, not to deal with corporate, but to deal with non-triple-A sovereign bond markets? I mean, if BTPs were as uh, uh, credible uh, as bonds, this would be a big help for, for the safe uh, asset story. So why move to corporate and not insist that the Italians make their securities a bit better? Exactly. Should I, should I answer that one? Well, we, can, we, can, oh, we want to collect. Let's collect three, if you okay. don't mind. So, 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 so that one, I, uh, it's a, uh, please. Okay. Thank you. 
Thank you. Uh, I'm Natasha Arvanetti from the European Committee of the Regions. Uh, thank you for the discussion and presentation. Quick question. Um, given the heated discussion we have here in Europe for national reforms, would you say that national reforms, structural reforms, are a panacea? And, uh, yeah. I'm sorry, I used the Greek word, sorry. I understood. <laughs> And uh, given the comment uh, Maria made on the um, governance, uh, I would like to hear your views on the uh, governance issue. Thank you. And I can take a third question the, all the way in the back there, please. Oh, it's Rebecca. Oh, I can't see it against the light. Hi, Rebecca Christie, also from Bruegel, also with a question about European safe assets. I was going to ask about how deep and how liquid um, a European asset would have to be to serve the function you mentioned. Francesco points out that Italy has a lot of bonds out there. They certainly have a good reputation from a debt management perspective. Um, the EIB also comes to mind. The ESM also comes to mind. Do you see any existing asset that might have the potential to be deep enough and liquid enough? It doesn't seem like any of the new things would get big enough quickly enough to, to help. Okay, so we have two questions on the safe asset. The first one is why not just make Italian debt safe with your structural reforms and then we have a big safe asset. And the second one, what other alterna what alternatives are there? And then um, uh, the, the question here by the lady. Uh, so I did not mean to give a rank ordering of uh, <laughs> the uh, safe as possible pool of safe assets. Uh, I was speaking in the context of a capital markets union, you know, which is why I was focusing about uh, corporate debt. I completely agree that if one, if, if, and it should be the case that other kinds of sovereign debt are also made more uh, safer, that would be good. Clearly, the markets don't perceive those at this point do not perceive all this debt as equivalent. You have spreads over uh, German bonds for many of these uh, uh, many of these assets that are being issued. So yes, I think more generally, from a fiscal perspective, from a long-run stabilization perspective, just making more, having more credible fiscal policy, safer debt, absolutely. Again, leaving aside the question of the international role of the of the euro, I completely uh, agree with that. Uh, is that going to be possible? Is it is it going to be the case that the world will treat all these kinds of uh, debt instruments exactly the same? Now, pre. Uh, the global financial crises and pre the, the, the debt crisis in the euro area, it was the case that many of these assets were treated as perfect uh, substitutes. Uh, but I, you know, it's going to take a little while longer before that happens. I think the markets have been burnt by it to some extent, mm -hmm. and, and so there is, there, it might take a, you know, a serious amount of reform. Uh, for this to happen. And so, and when you take reform, if you're a country that undertakes reform on multiple fronts, I think you automatically give more faith in your uh, macro policy. And so the reforms that we talked about, uh, if, you, if a country were to undertake those, I think that would signal uh, and, uh, you know, that you're, you're making the right uh, steps and that would be helpful. Are there other kinds of alternatives? Again, uh, you know, if the pool can be expanded to many more countries' sovereign debt, uh, if there can be uh, corporate AAA uh, securities of a, of a larger magnitude, I think all of those would play uh, an important role. And to the question about our structural reforms, uh, a panacea, I mean, I think we have to rely on the fact that <coughs> countries have grown by undertaking structural reforms. So it is not the case uh, that we don't have examples of when that happens and when it helps. 
We also provide in this paper evidence that countries that did undertake product and labor market reforms during the uh, crises uh, had much more greater resilience to the shocks and they recovered faster. So, so yes, it is um, a tough thing to push through. Uh, we provide very precise recommendations about the kinds of things that can be done and I feel like we're it's coming down to a minimum common denominator of things that can be done. So I would hope that at least at the minimum those would be undertaken. Okay, let's take a few more questions. Um, uh, Geisert. House of European History. We have this uh, discussion about a Eurozone budget. Um, in the long run, we want that not uh, uh, 19 member states are uh, member states of the Eurozone, but that uh, nearly uh, every uh, one of the 27 is uh, a member state of the Eurozone. Do you think that an Eurozone budget can be helpful to achieve this? Thank you. And then uh, please here. Um My name is Bernadette Segol. I'm the former General Secretary of the European Trade Union Confederation. Uh, Guntram has uh, introduced the question I wanted to put. He did it in a, he formulated it in a way that was more, probably more civilized than what I would have done. Um, but he did. Um, I have to say I'm a bit disappointed by the answer because I think it is a sort of politically correct answer that we've heard for years from economists. So sometimes I wish economists would uh, think out of the box. But you that's not my point. Market. You mean the labor market? The labor market. Okay. The labor market. This, is not, this is not my question. He's, you've replied. I'm, I'm just saying I'm not quite happy with it. Um, but, but I often take part in... Um, events on environment and how important it is. And here we are in, in an event on Euro area reform and so on. And I see no connection. Where are the connections between what we think is necessary on environment and what you are telling us? Is there a connection? Are there no connections? And why don't you work on that? And a third question, I, I think you were, yes? If I may ask on Capital Markets Union. Please uh, identify yourself also quickly. Yeah, yeah. Alexandra Zana from DG Equin, previously at DG FISMA. I would ask you something on the Capital Markets Union. And a uh, simple question is to what degree do you think that the euro area capital markets can converge towards a US model, even first? No, it's working, it's working. Given that Even two things. First is um, the structure of the um, non-financial corporations in Europe, which is much more based on uh, SMEs. And second, the uh, savers' preferences, which are much more linked to putting their savings with the banks rather than taking risks, particularly in equity markets, compared to the US. Maybe we've seen already a transition yes. towards markets in 2012-13, but was essentially due to large corporations and due to price uh, uh, reasons. I mean, the fact that banks couldn't provide at low cost and so on. Well. So, so we have a one technical question at the end. Um, can we really achieve capital markets union like the US has it, uh, given that our savers like to save in deposits um, and not in risky capital market products, and given that um, we have SMEs, really, that need funding, that have perhaps difficulties to get funding from 
from capital markets. And then we have the question on uh, the Green New Deal. Um, basically, shouldn't the Eurozone and the big reform package, I mean, we put out a strategic agenda last week for the new leadership, and we put a very big accent on, on the climate policy and the climate change, and actually emphasize very much in our paper that was written together with Maria and Andre Sapir, uh, we very much emphasize the need that you know there's huge investment needs to uh, basically transform our economies in a in a climate friendly way, um, and isn't that couldn't we make a link between that and the, and the eurozone? And the first question was on the eurozone budget and uh, you know the the extent to which um, uh, that will be helpful also in enlarging the eurozone, if I understood correctly. So, so. Um... <clears throat> Starting with the, with the first question, uh, we are absolutely in favor of having a central what we call a central fiscal capacity, which would be a euro uh, budget. Uh, and we think that's important not just for implementing structural reforms, which is what the current budget is talking about in increasing competitiveness, but also for macro stabilization. Uh, now, of course, we, we, had, we, had, we had put out a proposal there to have something called a rainy day fund for the euro area where countries would contribute in. It's also very important to make sure that there's no moral hazard problem, that this doesn't become a shifting of risk from one country to another. So uh, we have, you know, our, our proposals make sure that that moral hazard doesn't arise. Uh, and so that's an important part of it. So we are completely in, in favor of that. On the question of, uh, of environment, so the focus here was on this particular paper that was about product markets reform, labor market reforms, and corporate insolvency. But you're absolutely right that an environment is an important part of the discussion. And actually here I feel very good because we actually are doing a lot of work uh, on the environment at the fund. Uh, it used to not be the case that we did that a few years ago, but we've decided that it is macro critical. It's not something that one needs to worry about in you know, many years from now, but we have to think about it now. We very recently uh, put out papers on the use of carbon taxes. Uh, we have specific proposals on how, you know, when, when many countries in the world subsidize uh, uh, fossil fuels, for instance, on coal and on petroleum. Uh, but if, they, if you include the implicit subsidies that they're giving these kinds of fuels because they don't take into account the environmental costs, we flag that these are hugely costly in terms of the share of GDP, it's about 7%. Uh, and then lastly, in our surveillance operations and in terms of uh, policy recommendations, we are actually helping countries deal with meet meeting their climate, uh, their, you know, climate uh, mitigation, uh, risks mitigation goals. And so we, we are, we're going into all of those aspects. So I actually think that we are doing a lot on, uh, on both on the surveillance side, on training capacity, and in terms of uh, policy prescriptions. Uh, to the question of capital markets union, I think your question is a bit of a chicken and an egg problem, right? Uh, which is that, yes, indeed, it is the case that if you look at uh, what gets done right now, most of savings is in the banking sector, in deposits. Uh, and most of the borrowing by corporates, including this SMEs, are in, uh, uh, in, in, with respect to banks. So the question is, what would it look like if we did have deeper capital markets and if we had well-functioning and you could actually raise money cheaply on, uh, on financial markets without having to go through the banking sector? And our view is that there would be a change in behavior if that were the case. So uh, 
you know, it, we don't necessarily treat this as a completely behavioral feature that cannot be changed. We think it can be changed. I think we are um, exactly at 1.30, so I, I'm afraid um, our, time, I, our time is over, all the time we have today for you. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today and discuss with us. Um, it was wonderful, and um, all the best in, uh, in your job. Thank you very right, much. Thank for you, Dr. Thank you. Thank you.